Welcome to episode 362 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This is Jess Delfiaco filling in for Lisa Gonzalez. This week, Christopher chats with Matt Rantanen, Director of Technology at the Southern California Tribal Chairmen's Association and Director of the Tribal Digital Village Network. They discuss Matt's experiences finding creative solutions for better connectivity in Indian country, which often involves working throughout tricky terrain. Matt also talks about how the FCC's impact on tribal communities has changed in recent years, why broadband is continuing to become more and more important on reservations, and some promising new tools that are becoming available. We also get to learn about Matt's newest project, a company called Arcadian Infracom that's working to create diverse fiber paths throughout the U.S. thanks to some innovative partnerships with tribal communities. Now here's Matt and Christopher. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And today I'm talking to my good friend, Matt Rantanen, who, now pace yourself for this, is the Director of Technology of Southern California Tribal Chairman's Association and Director of the Tribal Digital Village Network. Welcome back, Matt. Hey, good to be here, Chris. So I'm excited. I know that you have a very interesting project going on in the Southwest that uh, we're going to talk about here in a minute. Uh, but first of all, I think just for people who haven't heard of it before, do you want to just very quickly remind us what Tribal Digital Village is? Sure. The Tribal Digital Village is an initiative that was started with a uh, Hewlett-Packard grant back in 2001 that essentially was designed to bring resource programs to the tribal facilities of the member tribes of Southern California Tribal Chairman's Association, which there are now 20 uh, member tribes. We were 19 at the time. And um, each of the reservations got some funding and computer equipment to build a resource program or resource center. If they already had that, it enhanced it um, so that kids had places to go after school to uh, to do homework and, and study and um, community members as well. And the uh, network to the uh, outbound internet was created to support uh, each of those locations. Um, and that network has grown into what we call TDBnet. And TDBnet is now over 650 miles of point-to-point and point-to-multipoint links with uh, 10 gig fiber at the head end and 10 gig fiber at the tail end of the network for redundancy and about 400 homes and right around 1,500 transient users. And you've been on top of all kinds of interesting wireless ways to solve this problem, right? I mean, you have uh, the solar-powered antennae um, in multiple areas. You've been doing stuff in the white spaces with Microsoft, um, all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. You know, you get in a situation where you have really diverse uh, geography, really tough to build situations. We have mountaintops and valleys and um, it has presented every single obstacle that you could possibly imagine. So we've come up with every single possible solution, duct tape, chicken wire, I mean, you name it, we've, we've put it together. Um, you know, some of the, some of the frequencies that are being av- becoming available to us like white space, um, EBS and a few other things, you know, we're starting to play in those realms so that we can expand our footprint um, shoot through some trees, kind of bend around corners, get some of that neater stuff that, that works a little bit better than line of sight. So we're excited that there's some opportunity there. But, yeah, we've had to 
We had to pull some tricks out of our hat, that's for sure, to make this happen. And we have 23 towers, 20 of them running off-grid on solar. Now, remind me, we've talked about this before, but what is the state, um, not that you um, are a representative of all of the, the tribes across the United States, but what is the situation in general on reservations regarding uh, telecommunication services? Uh, it's still pretty dismal. The um, you know the plain old copper network, the plain old telephone service is still right around seventy percent penetration. So thirty percent of the the folks that are on a reservation can't dial nine one one on the landline. Uh, you know, cellular is starting to creep in a bit, but you know there are plenty of places where we could show you no signal. Uh, the fun thing is to bring representatives of the FCC out to the reservation and drive them around and look at them struggle to try to figure out how to stay connected with their phones. And, um, you know, as, as far as uh, broadband technology and, and penetration in Indian country, projects like the Tribal Digital Village Network, like Red Spectrum and Coeur d'Alene, um, Yurok and Karuk tribes in Northern California, you know, a handful of, of tribes are actually putting together networks that are serving their communities. And, and you know, they're actually getting to the point where they're um, 100% access, you know, whatever the, the take rate is. And, and so they actually have opportunities for their folks to connect, uh, but it is not widespread. There's 573 federally recognized tribes in the U.S., 320 reservations in the lower 48, and um, we're looking at, you know, a fraction of those people that have access to this. There's only 12 tribal telcos as well, so, um, you know, the, the service area is is still small. Uh, we're growing, and the, and the shift in the mentality about what broadband is to a tribe and the tribal community and what the opportunities may lie ahead as far as education and, and uh, retaining their educated youth uh, as part of their population base. Um, things have changed. There's been a shift, but we certainly don't have the penetration that we need. Well, and one of the things that I hope that we'll see is that you'll have more tools, um, not just you, although, frankly, I think I'm always interested to see what happens whenever you get a new tool because um, <laughs> whether, whether it's welding in your shop in your house or, or uh, you know, building the networks uh, in different areas, um, you're pretty handy with it. But I was actually going to try and get into this uh, discussion around EBS, the Educational Broadcast Spectrum, if I remember correctly. Um, what, what is happening there? I mean, there, you can assume that, that maybe a number of the listeners have never even heard of EBS before. So what's happening there? What's the potential? So Educational Broadcast Spectrum, EBS, is was designed essentially to be able to connect educational facilities uh, with wireless, and it is in the, you know, sweeter spectrum range, um, the cellular style range. It can be distributed like LTE, and, um, you know, there's a few demonstration projects in Indian country that have been done. Uh, one of the leaders in, this, in the use of this technology is MuralNet, M-U-R-A-L, uh, Net. And um, the CEO, Mariel Triggs, is a big advocate for connecting tribal communities. She's working on the ground in, in the southwest, and then they connected the Havasupai down in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And that's one of the coolest projects being used for this. Um, basically, the spectrum is kind of on the chopping block at the moment at the FCC. It's, you know, the comments are open and potentially closed. I don't know the date, but... A lot of stuff has been said, uh, the tribal aspect of things, and a lot of people have pushed on the tribal side of things with all the way up to the chairman of the FCC and the commissioners, um, that there's a, a great 
opportunity for tribes to be able to utilize this spectrum because of the type of spectrum it is like cellular and to be able to use it to deploy to their communities. And we're pushing for a tribal priority. Um, the drafts that we've seen of the potential rulemaking are addressing this as a tribal priority. We just don't know to what extent things will change in the 11th hour, but um, you know, fingers are crossed because this is another swath of spectrum. Uh, it's a fairly big chunk and it opens up some doors for some real creative use uh, in Indian country. What does a tribal priority mean? Like, what would what would you be able to do with that? So, there's an example of tribal priority with the FM radio spectrum. The tribes. Um, so, typically, FM radio has a window of opportunity. The window opens. You can apply for a license. Um, you have a, a competition between, like, you know, the value of what you're bringing to the table with that license. There's a purchase fee. And then, you know, there's an award given in a region. Uh, so with a tribal priority on that component, if the tribe is serving its own tribal land, the tribe gets priority. There is no fee associated with the license, and there is no window of application. The window is always open for the tribal community. Um, you know, we feel that, that spectrum over tribal lands, um, though the United States does not identify that as tribal-owned, it would make sense that the tribes would have first access to that because the tribes are typically the um, carrier of last resort uh, that would serve that community because the the incumbents are not interested in, in serving um, a you know a low population density. The, the lack of ROI just forces them to say that you know it doesn't make sense to to put the infrastructure and we can't we can't recover the costs at all. But we can um, from the ground up, and we just need the opportunity and the access to the spectrum. So that's kind of where we're coming from. I want to ask you a, a question about the FCC more generally. And I don't recall if we've talked about this in past podcasts, but you and I have certainly talked about it in panels we were on together or things like that. Um, you know, If we go back to the beginning of the Obama administration, a lot of the public interest groups and, and myself, we really did not like Chairman Janikowski. We thought uh, he got a lot of things wrong. Um, and at the same time, I think you know your impression is that um, he actually did a lot for tribes and and I think I like to bring this up because a lot of people forget that tribes have your own interests you're not just rural America there's a lot of of different issues and so um, I want to get a sense if you want to just talk briefly about that um, and then um, about this this whole larger area that I'm trying to set up the um, you know chairman Wheeler came in in the second half of the Obama administration um, I liked him a lot of the public interest groups liked him a lot more I think he wasn't as good for the tribes and then um, um, Chairman Pai took over under the Trump administration, and and I think on the issue of of Lifeline, he's been really bad for um, a lot of the lower income uh, members of tribes and living in tribal areas. So uh, I'm curious how it's been more generally, though, and if you want to just say, you know, a brief overview of of your impressions of the FCC over the past ten years or so. Sure. So um, when Janikowski was in in place. Uh, well, let's rewind one step. We had Michael Cops in there as an interim uh, chair of the FCC, and that was one of the best things ever. Um, you know, Michael Cops is one of the biggest champions of Indian country. And I think uh, moving into Janikowski being the chair, I think a lot of that sentiment from Cops moved forward with Janikowski on the tribal front, and he was there as an advocate internal for a little bit of that time. Uh, obviously, the administration, the Obama administration, was geared towards helping tribal communities 
um, on some level. And so there, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't opposition to helping tribes. I think the, the real catalyst that, that caused us to be able to move under Janikowski was the fact that we started the Office of Native Affairs and Policy at the FCC during that time. Um, Jeffrey Blackwell was named chief of that office and um, several of the intertribal organizations and tribal leaderships uh, groups that are in the U.S. Um, endorsed Jeffrey Blackwell to be that position, and, and he was placed in that position. And we had, um, you know, a very strong advocate inside the FCC who was pushing internal for tribal issues, started the Native Nations Broadband Task Force, of which I, I served two terms under Jenikowski, and then I was reaffirmed under Wheeler, and we were able to move the needle quite dramatically during those times. Um, the shift essentially Janikowski uh in in my mind was like okay if if i can get up if i can do it you know push everything at me i'll push back on the things i can't do and so we pushed everything we could push at Janikowski, and we got 11 out of 12 you know it was that kind of a um a win uh wheeler came in a little bit different you know coming from the cable industry and the wireless industry and you know being in the hall of fame for both i th i think uh you know, he had a little bit different take on things. He was a little bit more calculating. Um, we had very good meetings on the eighth floor with him uh, through the National Congress of American Indians, and he was engaged. Uh, he wanted to be uh, supportive, but at the same time, he, you know, he was playing his role as he saw it. Um, and I think we got less done under Wheeler. And I think um, what happened with Wheeler um, and then transitioned into Chairman Pai with uh, with Lifeline, I think actually it it started its genesis with Wheeler and maybe was influenced by Wheeler, and then Chairman Pai was the one that that executed on that. And it, it's unfortunate because that has been very damaging to Indian country, and as we saw in court, you know that decision was overturned um, uh, in that specifically in the tribal areas that that were in question. And, you know, the impact to the tribal people was massive. So currently under this administration, though tribes are not a, a priority. As so, Matt, quickly, I think a reminder, and if let me know if I'm getting this right, because you and I have talked about this before, but the issue that was has been raised regarding Lifeline is that there are a number of companies that are basically trying to scam the federal government to get these subsidies. And so they go and they basically prey on low-income populations that live in Indian country. And the response from the FCC, and particularly under Chairman Pai, has been to say, well, let's just not give any money to Indian country effectively to try and like harm the scammers, but also having this, this an effect of taking phones away from, I don't know how many people, but lots of people who really need them. Yeah, so it, it gets even worse than that. So essentially what he's done, Chairman Pai has done with Lifeline in his you know, thought process on how to solve the waste, fraud, and abuse is to carve out on the map areas where he feels the waste, fraud, and abuse is the heaviest. So if you're going to be looking for a kickback from the federal government and you're going to scam the federal government, you're going to look for the biggest kickback, biggest bang for your buck. Well, Tribal Community Lifeline gets a bigger discount and a bigger payback rate from the FCC than a normal Lifeline customer off, the, off of reservation or off of tribal lands because the opportunity on tribal lands is far harder to connect people than it is in non-tribal lands. So 
obviously they're preying on the biggest dollar that they can they can recover from the FCC. And so we've seen actual pickup trucks full of phones drive into into fiestas and powwows and actually hand them out off the back of a truck. We've actually witnessed them asking, okay, what's your name? And then, you know, the husband comes up and says the name and then signs up for the phone. And then the wife is standing there. And then, you know, the tribes don't exactly understand the rulemakings on how this is actually supposed to be distributed. And then they say, what's your name? And she explains her name is the the same last name in the same household. And then what they do is they uh, tweak the spelling of the last name and hand the phone to the woman. And then there's a, a, let's say there's a 17 year old um, child in the house that's with the group at the time. Then they will ask the name of that person and they will tweak that last name or they'll tweak the address to cook the database. Um, And it's, you know, it's super frustrating to see that happen. Um, So basically by redrawing the line on the map, he is effectively saying that he has the ability to change sovereign right, right? Sovereign territory. Those lines on the map are there for a reason. We're sovereign dependents of the United States federal government. He's saying that he can redefine that area and pull services from that when he really doesn't have the right to do that. And I think that's why I got hung up in court. So I want to get back then to the overall impressions, um, aside from just Lifeline, but um, any any sense of how priorities around the needs in Indian country have changed um, under uh, the, the Trump administration? So interestingly enough, uh, I don't know that we are in favor at the moment uh, with this administration, but we Welcome have the to opportunity. The club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have the opportunity, however, to adapt, right? So we see opportunity, even though there is, you know, a different playing field and a different set of players with uh, some of the announcements and some of the focus that's happened. And we think to gain more voters uh, that are aligned with this administration, the administration is looking to serve uh, broadband to rural customers throughout the United States. They're very focused on rural connectivity. And those rural voters are typically farther to the right on the spectrum of politics than to the left. And so that would, that would increase the voter base and service to the voter base that I think aligns with the administration, which, you know, be it what it is, uh, we have the opportunity to convert that um, into opportunity for rural connectivity and, and tribes are mostly 90 um, some percent rural and, um, and we can take advantage of some of those opportunities that are coming out. And we can even actually get funding and and uh, things through like the RUS program with the reconnect and different things to be able to bring rural broadband out as long as we bring that broadband out with a focus on the on the region instead of just a micro focus on the tribe. This is a great opportunity then to talk about your next project because you're not busy enough. Uh, you don't travel enough. And, <laughs> um, you're working on partnering and business development for something called Arcadian Infracom. Uh, what is the deal with that? So about a year and a half to almost two years ago now, we, uh, we meaning uh, the, the original four or five people from Arcadian Infracom, um, got together around a meeting at, at PTC Pacific Telecom Conference. Um, there, a couple of, of problems uh, presented themselves to the group uh, on a couple of individual pathways and uh, like minds together trying to solve the same thing. Uh, it was one of those 
epiphany moments when, you know, the, the co-founders of Arcadian Infracom, uh, Dan Davis and Derek Garnier, thought, oh, what if we do this? And then the other one was like, yeah, if we did that, we could do this. And then all of a sudden, this spawned a broadband, uh, so fiber infrastructure building company, uh, not a service, service provider, but an actual uh, dark fiber builder that is uh, serving the top tier customers, uh, that being, you know, the Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and as the top tier customers uh, connecting their data centers um, through, through new, uh, and then, you know, quotes around that, new routes uh, through the United States to be able to create diversity in the fiber paths that don't exist today. Everybody seems to be building on the same rights of way, and it presents a real security risk for the infrastructure as well as just um, a risk in failure uh, to build in the same rights of way and not have a, a more diverse um, fiber structure of the United States or fiber map of the United States. So one of the things that happened... It's not like we're seeing unprecedented hurricanes, fires, and other forms of flooding and natural disaster. I don't know why you would be worried about that, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, global warming, what's that? Um, yeah, I could talk about that all day long with Tribal Digital Village and solar panels. Oddly enough, we get way more clouds than we ever have in the last 19 years. I've been here for 19 years, and I've seen three to five days in storms on average in the beginning. We are now seven to 10 days in the clouds without solar recovery. So, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. However, Brutal. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. This, uh, this diversity in the fiber path build uh, creates opportunity for a bunch of reasons. So these over-the-top hyperscalers, whatever you want to call that top-tier customer level, is driving the fiber map is driving the build map in the United States today and globally. It's not the carriers anymore. The carriers are more reactive than anything. They're picking up, uh, you know, fiber assets on routes that are being built, but they are no longer uh, capital heavy where they can actually go out and, and build new infrastructure, uh, greenfield in infrastructure. So a company like Arcadian Infocom is, is timed perfectly to be able to support these top tier customers and that is the business model. However, we have a freedom in design of that route. We have the ability to draw a new line through the map. We all know that 20 years ago, 19, 20 years ago, when all seven of the networks that were built across the United States built and valued on route miles built in a day, how, how valuable is that company? I don't know how many miles have they built. Well, that kind of a race across the country with fiber build really um, dictated how that fiber was going to be laid. It was avoiding every pitfall, every geographic um, obstacle, every tribal reservation, because they did not have the time to negotiate an easement or a right-of-way on each of the reservations of the 320 landmasses they had to get around to get across the country. Um, they created this this uh, map on the United States where there's these giant holes in the fiber um, there's no opportunity. So these new lines that Arcadian Infocom are drawing between these um, data centers for these high-value high customers, um, you know, they have to be from A to B with a certain amount of latency. Well, within that latency, there's a lot of leeway on where that route lays on the ground. So if, for instance, there's, um, you know of uh, Amazon and Facebook, just to, for me to pick out two companies, um, they may have data centers in like parts of 
um, you know, Colorado or New Mexico. And you're basically going to get fiber between the two of them. But in the, the course of how you do it, you can figure out whether you want to connect Pueblos or other reservations um, and or if you wanted to avoid them, which obviously in this case you wouldn't want to do. Sure. So our CEO, Dan Davis, um, essentially built, bought, and acquired uh, fiber for CenturyLink for the last, uh, I don't know, 15 years. And so he is self-aware that he was part of that problem in consolidating, uh, consolidating all those fiber companies into one. And um, in, in, in the process, uh, in his original build, when he built one of those networks across the country, that um, he was very aware of, of avoiding those pitfalls. He is now doing penance, if you will. We're holding him to the grindstone. He is going to um, lead this charge by dragging that fiber path through little town USA, um, zigzagging it back and forth to catch every reservation, every, um, every opportunity that the region needs, the rural region needs, and leaving connectivity opportunities at the doorstep. So one of the things I did in the Obama administration was work with a CTO of the United States to identify uh, a solution for, for tribes and why they don't have access to fiber. While it was a mapping project, we worked with all the carriers, we overlaid you know maps under a non-disclosure agreement over the reservation boundaries, we did some mapping work. There are 8,000 middle mile fiber miles missing from the map to be able to connect to reservations. So just to get middle mile fiber to a key location on each of the reservations in the lower 48, 320, that's how many fiber miles are missing, 8,000 miles. So this kind of a build drags that fiber path and presents opportunity and connectivity at, at very affordable rates at the doorstep of each of these locations, Little Town USA, Tribes, Pueblos, you name it, across that landscape. And with our partners and other small carriers, they will be able to build out those regions. That's pretty great. What are, what's, uh, the, is there like a uh, first project that you can talk about, or is this something that's not public yet? No, so there's an announced route. Uh, it's on the website. It, so we did a little play with the dot and the dot com. So it's arcadianinfra.com, <laughs> A-R-C-A-D-I-A-N, infra.com. If you go there, you can scroll down and you can see the map. There's there's a solid line on the map that looks like a Y. It goes from Phoenix through Cameron, Arizona to Salt Lake City and from Phoenix to Cameron, Arizona to Denver, Colorado. That Y creates a convergence path intentionally on the Navajo Reservation. Uh, One of the things that happened um, and that is actually happening this year is the coal-burning power generation station that's on the Navajo Reservation is shutting down. Um, it is a massive percentage of the tribal income annually. It is approximately 3,000 jobs, and you know it, it shifts the landscape on the reservation, and they're, they're definitely trying to figure out how to solve that. Well, by converging three fiber paths on the reservation at that location in Cameron, Cameron has access to multiple water sources. Um, the, tri- the, the utility company of the tribe has access to that. There are multiple um, fiber, I mean, not fiber, but uh, power providers that are in that region that can provide redundant power source. And the fiber build from Arcadian would provide uh, diverse routes in and out of that uh, 
potential data center location. So a data center build is imminent uh, on the Navajo reservation. We can't pick up 3,000 jobs with that, but the, you know there will be um, a lot of workforce needed uh, throughout the phases of the build of that and then the maintenance of that moving forward. Not to mention, it just creates a lot of opportunity on the reservation. So that's the first announced route. There is a route that has a dotted line that goes east and west off of that route. It supports Los Angeles, essentially through Flagstaff running on the I-40 uh, to, New, to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then through to Dallas. That uh, east-west route is, um, you know, in the works, and we're comfortable putting it on the page because we've had conversations with each of the states involved, a lot of the key stakeholders involved, and um, it will be the, the next route. And it, um, it's very exciting because it will do things like connect all of the Southwest universities to capacity for their supercomputer centers. It will do things like um, bring data center traffic for some of our customers um, east-west at a capacity that they don't currently have to that region. Uh, it connects oddly like Dallas to Salt Lake, which isn't really a direct path currently. You don't have to go around the Navajo Reservation anymore. You can go through the Navajo Reservation, where before you used to have to go sometimes from Salt Lake City to Los Angeles to Phoenix or from Denver to El Paso to Phoenix. Now you can go Denver to Phoenix. Uh, that's, that's a huge shift. It also changes the landscape on where people are placing data centers and you know, growing opportunities uh, moving forward. Right. Well, I, I remember that one of the challenges you had. I mean, I, <laughs> I can't, re I can't imagine with how much satisfaction it is that you can talk about having a ten gig link on both sides of your network now, because there was a time when when there was no off ramps. Right. You had fiber nearby, but you couldn't touch it. Yeah, it's been amazing. Indian country has that problem right, with the eight thousand missing miles. Well, we identified a, a fiber opportunity close to the TDV network, and I could not for the life of me, for at least six years, break into that fiber. I could not get the fiber. And then when I could finally get access to the people that would finally sell me the fiber, you know, $17 a meg per month, which you cannot afford to do at scale. And so, you know, it was a relationship with a state CIO. It was a public announcement of tribal aligned with government. It was them getting me in the door to the right negotiation people. Well, with Arcadian Infocom, I'm, I'm with a group of people that understands that level, right? So I'm I'm in the door doing business development, uh, helping helping do this. So Arcadian worked a year in secret with the Navajo Nation to be able to to go across that reservation. The Navajo Nation has been advertising for decades a million dollars a mile easement. If you want to ride away across their land, twenty seven thousand square miles or something crazy, um, you know it was a it was a million dollars a mile linear mile. And it was basically a sign on the outside of the reservation that said, go away, we don't want to deal with you anymore because they've been mistreated for so long. Well, they actually came to us about how to solve the problem with the closing down of the power generation station and what could they do with it. And they were thinking data center and data center makes a lot of sense. The problem is data center without fiber is a warehouse, a rather hot warehouse. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, the, the real solution to the problem is, is a fiber path through the reservation and um, the tribe is benefiting greatly from the, from the um, relationship and the easement. Uh, they're actually getting dark fiber. They're getting lit services, 400 gig lit services on reservation and they're getting um, revenue share 
uh, off the top. So it, it's a great opportunity. It's a great relationship. And we're hope we're changing the landscape for future fiber builds from other companies to work more closely with the tribe as a partner rather than just an obstacle. Great. Well, I've, I've really appreciated this um, discussion to get a better sense of what's going on and that there's progress. You know, it's, it's really great seeing that there's so many more opportunities on the horizon. Yeah, I mean, there needs to be many more, obviously, but, you know, this is a big start. Um, we hopefully will shift the landscape a little bit with the, the way that we've done this deal. And uh, as this um, starts to gain momentum um, and more builds come online, uh, we think we can, you know, make a difference. And that's what we're here to do. We're trying to we're trying to help solve that rural uh, connectivity problem. And, and uh, you know, America's got a lot of talented people that live outside the city centers, and they just don't have access to to the resources they need. And a lot of those people are on reservation, so it's really important to get those people connected. Great. Thank you, Matt. No problem, Chris. Good to talk to you. That was Christopher and Matt Rantanen discussing connectivity in tribal communities. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules podcast. You can access them wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. Thank you for listening to episode 362 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast.